This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon. Today, just after news headlines at half past 12, you will learn all about the first commercial crop of the oilseed safflower, which is going to be planted by WA farmers this season. And it's about 3,000 hectares. That's expected to go in the ground on farms between Geraldton and Esperance. All the details for you after half past 12 today. And also catching up with a transport researcher who's developed a, a proposal, put together a proposal to improve rail safety here in Western Australia. It's all about lighting up those locos and those freight wagons that you see snaking their way around Western Australia and making those roads safer for you, your family and friends who are driving around on those roads and going over those rail crossings. More details on that shortly here on the Country Hour. It is six past 12. And it sounds like some of Western Australia's main meatworks are struggling to stay open due to COVID cases and restrictions. And that is having a direct impact on prices farmers are getting at the sale yards. So if the meatworks have less staff, they can't process as many sheep, so there's less competition among the bidders at the sale yards and the prices fall. That is exactly what happened at yesterday's Mushay sheep sale. Even though the numbers were down 2,500 on the previous week, prices still dropped quite a bit across nearly all the lines. Mark Warren is a livestock agent and auctioneer at Nutrien. He's not expecting COVID to cause a major crash in the market, but it's certainly affecting all the major abattoirs in WA and will continue to do so for at least the next six weeks. Fletcher uh, Abattoir in Albany is uh, currently shut at the moment due to COVID cases. WAMCO are back to only killing about 2,000 a day instead of about 3,800. So those two major ones obviously are slowing things up a bit at the moment. VMV Walsh in Bunbury, the main one over there, once again, not 100% sure, but um, if they are going, they'll be going very slowly. Yeah, it's just going to slow things up for probably a good two or three weeks, I would presume. So um, unfortunately, we're going to have a bit of a backload of lambs probably over the next six weeks it'll take to to get rid of the backload. So um, yeah, it's just a bit slow at the moment, unfortunately. And what does that mean for some of the farmers who are going to be selling into those sheep markets? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, obviously this time of year is a lot of lambs on feed, uh, as in feedlots as well. So um, unfortunately, it's probably just going to put them back a couple of weeks before you know the abattoirs can get back to full strength and start killing their, their normal numbers. So yeah, it's going to put a little bit of pressure on. Generally, as a rule, you know, we'll probably get a bit shorter lambs come end of April, but uh, this will probably push us into a bit of May now where we'll still have a few numbers around. And obviously, we're, we're leading into Easter in another three weeks, which gives us, you know, two or three weeks short killing weeks. So it's just going to put a bit of pressure on and... Um, and but it's just going to be a slow process but i think this stage the market will hang on pretty well it's just going to slow things up a bit 
When you say the market will hang on, what do you imagine that impact will have on pricing? Oh, look, I think at this stage, I don't think it'll have a major effect. Uh, there's no indication to say that the market's going to fall away. So um, I, I would say most all the abattoirs will be trying to keep the price up as much as they can. So, yeah, I'd, it just means there's going to be a few more lambs around longer than we'd expect. That's all. What about what sort of effect do you imagine that will have on the output from those abattoirs? If they're not able to deliver, what will those customers be looking at? I think you'll find, uh, and it'll have to come from the abattoirs themselves, but I'm sure they've uh, they've got plenty of stock in chillers and freezers that'll keep things ticking along for a fair while. So, as I said, we've had no indication that uh, they're going to have dramas with uh, selling the product, but probably better off talking to them. But they've got plenty of stock at the moment, uh, which, will, which should hopefully carry us through until we can get sorted again, yeah. Do you imagine that there will be an added burden on some of the people running those feedlots and farms where those sheep will be waiting in the meantime? If there's some of the feedlots that have got sheep ready at the moment, yeah, look, there will be a bit more of a cost. They're going to have to probably feed them a bit longer than they wanted to, even though they are ready. Hopefully that's not too long, but it's probably uh, best case scenario is probably, you know, a good couple of weeks longer that they're going to have to hang on to them for, I would presume, at this stage. Have you had any clarification with regards to the seriousness or the number of of COVID cases that are associated with some of these closures? No, I haven't uh, found out the actual numbers, but it's um, yeah, it's obviously takes a certain amount of people to run an abattoir. So I'd, I would presume once they get below a certain number of people, they 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 have to shut or or go on skeleton staff. As far as I'm aware, when you look at yarding over the last couple of weeks, how quickly? Has it come about that there's been a reduction? Oh, look, it's probably been reducing over the last four or five weeks anyway due to just the time of year. So, yeah, it, it hasn't hasn't dropped significantly because of the COVID cases. It'll slow up a bit, but uh, this time of year it starts to drop off anyway. So there's not a major, major problem there at all at the moment. You mentioned that you didn't anticipate a dramatic impact on pricing. How strong is the upward pressure on pricing that's coming from the rest of the country that it can counteract the lack of buyers coming through the abattoirs? Yeah, look, the market's been pretty steady for um, a fair while now. So um, I I can't, even though it's just going to be slow, I, I can't see the market coming back considerably um, at the moment most abattoirs you know in the in the 820 a kilo for for lambs at the moment so I can't see that changing big heaps um, but uh, in saying that I'm not running an abattoir either but yeah I think um, this it's probably luckily enough that we've uh, it's happened this time of year and not in the spring so obviously there's not as many sheep around for sale this time of year than there is in the spring so we're probably fortunate enough where it's probably not going to hurt us heaps but it's just as I said we'll slow things up. Nutrient agent Mark Warren speaking to Angus McIntosh about how COVID cases and restrictions are having an impact on some of the biggest meatworks here in Western Australia and we did approach each of the meatworks that Mark Warren mentioned there, a Wamco confirming it is isolating some Katanning workers in line with health advice. The co-op is asking workers with any symptoms not to come in. Wamco CEO Cole McCrory says in recent weeks their plant's been down about 70 to 80 people each day, so they've had to pull back on some of the orders. And we haven't been able to confirm any details from Fletcher's or V&V. And so far... 
uh, no one wanted to come on and have a talk here on the Country Hour. Just before one o'clock today, Tracy Kilner will have all the details from today's sheep sale at Katanning. About 8,500 sheep and lambs were in the yards this morning, so well down on last week's total of 13,000. Uh, with so low numbers, normally uh, prices would rise, um, but I do hear the prices have dropped significantly today. And Tracy's going to go through those details just before the news at one o'clock. 13 past 12. Well, over the last couple of years, you have been paying a lot of money for red meat and you've probably been prepared to do that because other grocery items have remained fairly stable up until now. Rabobank says the price of beef has gone up about 8% in the past 12 months and in some shops you're paying around $13 a kilogram for mince. Senior animal protein analyst Angus Gidley-Baird says as the price of other grocery items, things like dairy, bread, fruit and vegetables start to rise, it may just test your willingness or your ability to pay top dollar for beef. Red meat has been probably very fortunate over the last couple of years where, particularly looking from a beef point of view, we've had the very limited supplies and as a result, very high cattle prices. These have actually been able to be passed through to the consumer and we've seen beef prices rise quite dramatically over the last two years. They increased 8% last year, which is the, the strongest of all the meat categories. Lamb rose a little bit, poultry was pretty much stable. And I think what, what has been beneficial is that we haven't seen much movement in the other food classes, the dairy, the breads and cereals, the fruit and veg. So to a certain extent, you know, the consumer and the retailer has probably been able to accommodate these increased prices in red meat. When we see all the other food categories starting to lift, though, it's a question of whether or not that consumer is going to be willing to continue to spend as much as they want, uh, as much as they have on, on, on red meat, beef and lamb. Broccoli at the moment is about $7 a kilogram. It's gone up 75%. Do you see that vegetable consumption could be a threat to meat consumption potentially? Yeah, well, it all comes down to how that consumer wants to spend the money uh, in that shopping basket. We all know that you, you go to the shops and you're buying for a dinner or you're buying for a week's worth of meals. You, you're not buying one piece of steak. So you're, um, you're conscious of how much the overall shop will be and the preference for that consumer towards any particular food category will start to influence what they, what they buy in the shops. Beef might be a little bit less susceptible in the sense that it's got a range of different cuts at different price points from your your mince your cheap mince cuts all the way up through to your premium steaks so it is able to sort of operate up and down that spectrum but at the same time i know in my local shop we're still selling mince for 13 dollars a kilo which is still well above what chicken prices are so maybe that consumer starts to say well if i'm spending that much on my broccoli then maybe i'll just get mince today or maybe I won't get meat I won't won't get beef I'll get chicken today instead have chicken prices changed much over the past 12 months we saw just before Christmas you uh, really couldn't actually buy chicken on the shelves because of some, some supply chain constraints has chicken got more expensive too uh, look, chicken prices have been very steady for the last 12 months. This is based on average uh, retail price data that we, we see. Yeah, so they've been they've been very steady. There, there will be challenges, no doubt, um, in the, the chicken supply chain. They're obviously heavily reliant on grain prices as a, as a cost of production for them. So we're seeing some very strong grain prices in Australia at the moment, and that starts to flow out of some of the, the things that are happening overseas with, with Russia and Ukraine. So they'll be watching that and, uh, and trying 
want to factor that into their cost of production. But generally, chicken has, has tended to be very steady on the, on the retail price shelf. Obviously, producers want people eating their food. So what can, uh, say, the red meat industry do to try and combat cost of living pressures? Yeah, I, I think, and this is this is a fairly general statement across the board for red meat and, and meat in particular, it's a high value protein now. And we've got to make sure that the consumer is getting the high value in return. And so I think that's all about making sure we focus on the quality aspects of the product and also service as well in terms of the you know retailers and independent butchers and how they they display and 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 promote it but i think quality is a key thing uh and and making sure that that consumer when they buy that piece of steak or they buy that lamb rack that they know um or they have the comfort that it is a high quality thing and therefore it is worthwhile paying what they are paying for it Rabobank's Angus Gidley-Baird speaking to Jane McNaughton. You can read the online story right now. Just search Food Prices ABC Rural to have a read through Jane's story. 17 past 12 here on the Country Hour. And one of those rising farm input costs that's going to be contributing to some of those increases in food prices will definitely be the cost of fertiliser. Those prices are continuing to go up and are now at record highs. The price of the raw materials went up 10% in the last week alone due to supply issues caused by the war in Ukraine. Professor Mike McLaughlin is the Director of the Fertiliser Technology Research Centre at Adelaide University and he thinks it's inevitable food prices will continue to go up. Fertiliser prices are really going through the roof because of the war in Ukraine for two reasons. One is Ukraine has deposits of potash and potash is basically a potassium fertiliser and also urea, which is a nitrogen fertiliser. So exports of those are limited, but also the sanctions on Russia. Russia is probably the biggest fertiliser exporter in the world and they've got several key fertilisers that are now sanctioned effectively and so prices have uh, demand is still there because food demand is always increasing, but the supply of fertiliser is limited, so the prices just shot up. I think it's gone up 10% in the last week, so it's now at record high prices. These are the highest prices ever for fertiliser raw materials, and that means it's going to flow through. That's one of the reasons also that wheat prices have gone up, uh, because the cost of production have gone up, but also Ukraine's a major wheat exporter. And so food prices are probably going to increase almost certainly, that's a problem for developed countries, but it's a critical problem for uh, less developed countries where food supply is, is really critical to survival of the people. Is there anything that can be done? How can we reduce the price of fertiliser? As a research centre, it's difficult for us to have much control on, on the price of fertilisers, but we're continually looking for more efficient products where less might be needed to have the same effect. You know, if you're a home gardener, you can replace the fertiliser, mineral fertiliser you buy in bags at the supermarket with chook poo or animal manures like um, horse manures or cattle manure. Uh, you can get blood and bone uh, from abattoirs, those sorts of things. And those can replace mineral fertiliser and they've also got other benefits for organic matter in the soil. So uh, the home gardener may not be significantly affected, but it's farmers who've got thousands of hectares of land that can't use those sorts of products that need mineral fertiliser critically for for planting this season. So what will that mean for farmers? It means that the fertiliser bill at the start of the season is going to be quite high unless they cut back on the fertiliser use. 
Now, it's difficult to cut back on fertilizer use because it will get reflected in lower yields. And lower yields mean that prices of grain will go up in the future. Later in this year, the price of food will probably increase because either the price of growing the food has increased or the supply of food has decreased. So again, it's all supply and demand. Mm. Uh, is there anything that can be done? Well, if the war in Ukraine was resolved, that would be great, and exports could resume again. Uh, what most countries are doing is looking for alternative supplies of fertilizer or trying to uh, ramp up production in their own countries to try and fill that gap. It's similar to oil prices. You know, when, when oil prices go up, people look for alternatives. And with oil, we do have substitutes in terms of, you know, electric vehicles and gas and things like that. But with fertilizer, there's no substitute. You can't substitute another product for phosphorus. That's it. That's all we've got. So there might be other byproduct sources that we can use, as I said before, like manures and stuff like that. But there's just not enough to grow the food that we uh, that we need globally. Uh, I think what we'll see this year is that if fertilizer prices stay high, it will make new projects economic that were previously uneconomic at the lower fertilizer prices. So we may see new mines or new facilities open up because the fertilizer price is so high and it suddenly makes that particular resource economic to, to use. Professor Mike McLaughlin, he's the director of the Fertiliser Technology Research Centre at Adelaide University and he was speaking to Patria Ladgrove. 22 past 12, well, as the price of food and red meat continues to rise, there may be opportunities to develop alternative protein markets. The latest protein report from the National Science Agency, the CSIRO, says Australia is very well positioned to become a global delicatessen for a range of proteins, including white flesh fish, edible insects and better-tasting legumes. Professor Michelle Colgrave says Australia's global reputation for high-quality food production puts the country in prime position to take advantage of emerging markets. So what we're seeing is the growing global population, of course, and we're seeing an emerging middle class in regions like Asia. But in Australia, we're also seeing changing consumer preferences. So we know that we have up to a third of Australians who are now either seeking flexitarian or reducitarian diets, uh, which means that they still consume products like red meat and seafood, but they might do so less frequently or they might have a reduced portion size. And so in doing so, they're seeking alternatives, which includes things like plant-based protein, and also they're looking at a new and emerging things like insects that could be used as fortified products into our food systems, or we're even looking at new technologies like precision fermentation, which is akin to what we do with brewing, where we use yeast to produce beer. But in this case, we're actually starting to make tailored proteins that can deliver health benefits or unique functionality into new food products. We know that, um, for instance, we've been producing meat and and seafood and plant protein for over 100 years. And what we're looking at is how do we grow some of these opportunities? In the case of our aquaculture, we've got a white flesh fish industry, which is relatively small, but we've got an opportunity to scale it and grow it over three to five years. And that means that we will actually be able to reduce the reliance on imported uh, white flesh fish products, of which we currently import around 90%. So we've got an opportunity to change that right here and right now. With plant protein, we need to develop 
scaled-up infrastructure to um, really be able to onshore some of our manufacturing. We grow all the crops here, but now we need to be able to turn those crops into ingredients that can go into food manufacturing. So that's that's a critical part. And so there's, it's going to take a little bit of time to establish that manufacturing capability, but it could be achieved in two to four years. We know that some traditional farmers find the new advances in science, things like plant-based meat, to be somewhat of a threat to their industry. Are these new proteins a threat to the traditional agricultural economy? No, absolutely not. In fact, what we say is that there's a seat at the table for everyone on this opportunity. We know that protein demand is, is going to exceed what we can possibly produce. So it's just a question of how do we access those export markets and part of that is in delivering the right integrity systems to ensure that the Australian brand um, is maintained as it goes from our farms all the way to the fork, whether that be on Australian plates or overseas. So there's, there's opportunities to value add to red meat, the lesser cuts of meat and produce nutraceuticals and even protein ingredients for smoothies and the like to address the consumer health and wellness markets. But there's also opportunities in plant protein to complement and in these emerging industries. But there's so much demand that there's no one that's going to miss out. CSIRO Future Protein Mission Lead, Professor Michelle Colgrave, speaking to Jane McNaughton. It is 26 past 12. Shortly, an update from the ABC Newsroom. Just before that, though, a transport researcher has developed a proposal to improve rail safety here in Western Australia. Dr Brett Hughes has worked in transport safety for 30 years and says lights need to be put on the locomotives and down the sides of freight wagons. And he says this would make the trains much more visible to drivers. So what we've proposed for trains uh, are for the locomotives, uh, outline lighting, additional front lighting, flashing lighting, including rotating beacons on trains, and also improved colours on trains, the front colours that trains display. What are the problems with the trains, the locomotives, as they are at the moment? So at the moment, in certain circumstances, trains can be very difficult to see and they can be very difficult to appreciate what distance they are away from the driver and how, how fast they are moving towards the driver. So sometimes it's hard for a driver just to pick up there's a train there, particularly if they're not looking so well, and sometimes it's hard to judge a distance in front of a train, and so they don't always uh, choose um, a safe crossing. And when you talk about colours, are they particularly dark at the moment? So trains are required to display certain colours on the fronts of trains, but some of the colours that are in the Australian standard are very dark and don't suit certain backgrounds, and they're also not very large. So you can display a small area of dark red, which really doesn't show very much about a train, and so it's not always very visible in the surroundings, particularly in uh, poor light conditions. When you talk about the outline... Um, is it a little bit more like what you see on road trains at night where the front of the road train is quite lit up up to a height up to the top of the cab? Would the, the front of trains be a little similar? So that's exactly right. All heavy road vehicles are required to have front outline lighting and they're required to have side lighting. 
uh, whether or not they're oversized vehicles, even standard heavy vehicles require, are required to have that outline and side lighting. So it's analogous to that and putting it on trains. And what about the wagons? Because that's another area. Uh, CBH say they're putting reflectors on their wagons. You mentioned reflectors too, but uh, don't stop there. Are reflectors enough? Sure. So the first problem with reflectors is they they're they aren't always very effective uh, because of the way reflectors work with angles and colour and they get degraded over time. Even if you wash them, they don't always reflect very well. And then wagons can have lights on them as well. And this is where new technology needs to be applied. There's a variety of battery, solar, LED technology, which can be applied to light the signs of, sides of trains because the sides of trains are often very difficult to see at night when the car lights aren't pointing in exactly that direction and the trains are very dark. What difference do you think this will make? We, we would expect that safety would be improved at level crossings. Um, how much difference uh, it would make, nobody is really sure. But what we know is that railways need to operate at a level of safety as far as is reasonably practicable. That's the law. And what we know at the moment is that they can do better than what they're doing at the moment. Uh, they can improve safety for um, railways, trains at level crossings. You've named this proposal the Yarramani Lights after the, the uh, crash 22 years ago that killed uh, three young people. Why did you decide to give it that name? I guess it's a personal appreciation that every person's life is valuable and we shouldn't forget what's happened in the past. We should learn from it and out of respect for the families who have unceasingly worked for improved safety at level crossings. Yes, some of those families have worked for many, many years to try and make some improvements on our roads, especially at those railway crossings to make those roads safer for drivers. Transport researcher Dr Brett Hughes talking about his proposal to improve safety on our roads at those rail crossings in particular uh, with Cecile O'Connor. 29 to 1 here on The Country Hour. Time for an update from the newsroom with Brianna Shepherd. Hello. Western Australia has today reported 8,429 new COVID cases and one death. WA Health says a man aged in his 90s died with the virus on Monday, but the death was not reported until yesterday. There are now 194 people in hospital, nine of them in intensive care. There are currently 40,695 active COVID cases in the state. Brian Houston, the head of the global megachurch Hillsong, has resigned over allegations he behaved inappropriately towards two women. The acting head of the church, faster pastor Phil Dooley, has made the announcement at an emergency all-staff meeting. He says it's a time of humble reflection for the church. And Australian world number one tennis player Ash Barty has announced her retirement. The 25-year-old used social media to announce the news. Barty says she first started thinking of retiring after winning Wimbledon and no longer has the motivation to compete at the top level. More news coming up on the hour. Brianna, thank you for that update. It is 28 to 1. 
You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. Before the news at one, off to Katanning. Tracy Kilner going through the yarding and the prices at the Katanning sheep market. It's going to be interesting to see what the prices have done today because, as you heard yesterday and earlier in the hour today too, um, some of the meatworks been affected through COVID and, you know, staff having to stay at home and, and isolate. And that means there's less bidders in the market. So the prices obviously fell yesterday, and Tracy will go through the details for you shortly before the news at one. Also today, um, just an update on the controversial pre-emergent herbicide overwatch and catching up with one agricultural consultant who says that it's still active in some soils close to 12 months after it was applied at sowing time last year. That's to come between now and the news at one. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Angeline Prasad with you this afternoon. Angeline, can we start in northern and eastern parts of Western Australia? And we've been keeping an eye on tropical cyclone Charlotte, which was way off the coast the last couple of days. Where is it at the moment? Good afternoon, Belinda. Yes, so currently... Um Severe tropical cyclone um, is uh, located about 660 kilometres to the northwest of Exmouth. And it's moving south at 10 kilometres per hour, so a fair distance away from the from the coast. Um, the system is expected to weaken, um, so we it was a Category Four system last night, and this morning it was downgraded to a Category Three. So it is expected to continue to move southwest during the next 24 hours and slowly weaken below. Uh, tropical cyclone intensity late Thursday. From Friday, the low pressure system or the remnants of um, tropical cyclone Charlotte uh, will continue to move towards the south southeast, and it is expected to interact uh, with the weather system to the southwest, and this could lead to fairly erratic motion, motion even become slow moving. Um, over the weekend, and it may move closer to the uh, coast. Um, so although the system is not expected to be a named tropical cyclone by Friday, it is still expected to have gale force winds around the southern parts of the circulation as it moves south and gets closer to the uh, west coast. Um, now, if the system does track uh, close to the coast, damaging winds may be possible for areas of the west coast on the weekend, most likely in areas between Carnarvon and Lenslin. And there will also be a general increase in rainfall across the western half of WA over the weekend as the system drags tropical moisture southwards. So generally, we're expecting 20 to 40 millimetres in a broad area south of Shark Bay, with the most intense rainfall really dependent on the track of the system. Now, I must emphasise, Belinda, that the... The movement of the system is highly uncertain from Friday onwards. So there's still a fair amount of uncertainty what the system will do. But this is a general um, sort of forecast of what we're thinking will happen over the weekend with that increase in rainfall south of Shark Bay. Um, in the north uh, today uh, and tomorrow, we are expecting gusty thunderstorms across the northern uh, parts of uh, um, the Kimberley extending into the Pilbara and into the northern parts of the 
Gascoigne and that pattern is going to continue. Very hot temperatures across the southern parts of the Kimberley, so getting above 40 degrees, and also through parts of the Pilbara and the north interior. This heat does swing around uh, to parts of the northwest Gascoigne tomorrow with those east to northeasterly winds building. Temperatures across the southwest land division are also warming up in that easterly flow due to a persistent ridge to the south of the state. Um, from Saturday onwards, with that, uh, with the remnants of uh, Charlotte getting closer, we could be looking at severe thunderstorms across the western parts of WA. So there is that risk of damaging winds and potentially flash flooding um, as that system picks up uh, or, or causes um, increased weather across the western parts of uh, the uh, the state. And more details then on the Southwest Land Division for us, Angeline. I mean, I know it's still uncertain where TC Charlotte is going to be moving, but is there a possibility of some rain out of that system further south? Yes. So south of Shark Bay, we are looking at 20 to 40 millimetres. Across the western parts, far western parts of the uh, Southwest Land Division on Saturday. Friday, we're thinking the rainfall will be confined the sort of the more uh, moderate falls, 5 to 15 millimetres will be confined to the uh, coastal areas of the central west and uh, about 1 to 10 millimetres across the uh, western parts of the Pilbara and the western parts of the Gascoigne from from thunderstorms. That rainfall figure does increase on Saturday where we could see 20 to 40 millimetres across parts of the central west, the lower west, and the western parts of the central weed belt, the great southern and the um, and the southwest district. And there could be 10 to 30 millimetres a little bit inland. Uh, so just widespread increase in rainfall totals. And so basically across the western half, we could be seeing um, 10 to 30 millimetres with um, falls 20 to 40 millimetres across the um across the central west, lower west and the southwest. On Sunday and Monday it's it, it really depends what the system will do. So at this stage there's you know, we're thinking that the system or the remnants the low, of the low pressure system won't um cross the cows, but we can't rule that out possibly. So depending on what the system does, we could see um, those moderate to heavy falls continuing into early next week across the Southwest Land Division. And then this afternoon, Angeline, warnings? Yes. So um, looking at marine warnings today, we have got strong wind warning out for the Geraldton Coast, Lancelin, Perth Coast and Bunbury. Uh, strong wind warning will continue for the Lewin Coast tomorrow. And um, looking at, um, apart from the tropical cyclone warnings that um, that are out for tropical cyclone Charlotte, we don't have any fire weather warnings today, which is a bit unusual. <laughs> Angeline, thank you for that. And lovely to have you in Western Australia, finally, because up until now we've been talking to you from the BOMS Darwin office because the WA board has been up for uh, quite some time now, but we've finally let you in. Uh, how's WA treating you so far? Uh, it's been a bit warm. I was expecting much cooler weather. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'll come. That'll come. It's around the corner. Uh, Angeline, thank you so much. I appreciate that. It is 20 minutes to one here on the country. Just checking the rainfall figures. And in the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, the only place here in WA to record any rain was the Duke in the southern coastal region, which had a whopping one mil in the gauge. Uh, that rain story... Could be about to change. You just heard from Angeline with TC Charlotte, perhaps 
bringing some rain a little bit later in the week. Just earlier talking about the um, proposal to improve road safety here in WA by lighting up the, the locomotives and the freight wagons on the rail systems in this state. And Noddy says, expert, right? No amount of light, reflectors, etc., will make any difference. Your expert should actually go and look at all the graffiti on the wagons that would all be painted over. Cheers from Noddy. You can have your say too on text 0448922604. 19 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And WA farmers will sow their first commercial crop of oilseed safflower this season. As Joe Prendergast reports, 3,000 hectares is expected to go in the ground on farms between Geraldton and Esperance. A new break crop option for farmers and a new biolubricant industry for Australia. They're the hopes that are riding on safflower, a pretty unremarkable looking scraggly plant with spiky leaves and yellow flowers. But its potential isn't in its looks. It's in the oil that rests in its seeds. The food sector really and its use now as a healthy oil is really probably one of the smallest markets that we're looking at. Also, likewise, we've got uh, a small amount going into the uh, personal care market. But look, really, two major markets that we're targeting, um, both here in Australia and internationally, are the bio-based industrial formulations and transformer oils. Melbourne-based company Go Resources has the commercial rights to a genetically modified variety of safflower bred to have super high levels of oleic acid. The company's research and development lead, David Hudson, says the oleic acid concentration allows the safflower oil to be used as an alternative to palm or crude oil in a range of applications. Industrial lubricants um, from that are bio-based, uh, greases and hydraulic fluids. We're working with a couple of researchers and another company to produce these greases and hydraulic fluids and lubricants for Australian farmers. The second market, the transformer oil, um, is used to insulate and cool transformers, which are critical components of electrical systems. And uh, we already have a major customer in India. And, you know, we've got other companies in Asia that are showing a lot of interest. Across the country, 12,000 hectares of safflower is expected to be grown this season. What's got farmers and agronomists excited about growing it is its potential to fit as a new break crop option in broadacre systems. Safflower has a big taproot and it can grow in saline and sodic soils. Michael Lamond is an agronomist who worked with Go Resources overseeing a number of WA trial plots last year. Less than 5% of our total plantings per annum is break crop plus pasture. So got very little break crop options, got nothing for these sodic saline soils on the valley floors, you know, at all, which is about half our soil type. So, like, it could be quite, and particularly if you can have a positive profit margin on it, yeah, it, it could be pretty neat. You know, there's been a lot of breeding effort going into it and being a hybrid, we know that the advancements will occur fairly quickly. I think there'll be hurdles along the way. You know, it's not all perfect. We came across a few bear traps last year. I suppose the difference with this product is that the markets are, are there and they're growing and they're really solid. I don't think it'll be a boutique crop. I think it, it will have probably some very specific soil type requirements. There'll probably be ups and downs along the way as it was with canola, of course. Yeah, I think medium term, you know, five to 10 years, I think it, it looks pretty promising to me anyway. So how big could safflower get in WA? 
Well, it's early days, but David Hudson from Go Resources says geographically, WA is well positioned to supply developing markets. We're looking to create you know, a global supply chain out of Western Australia. To put a number on it, um, it's a bit difficult. For example, like one customer has already signed a long-term contract with us and we, we, we're looking to supply that out of Western Australia and they're talking 15,000 tonnes of oil. So you convert that to hectares and potentially looking at just for one customer in the next five years is possibly looking at 45 to 55,000 hectares. There is demand for high allaic vegetable oil across the globe. Ukraine is usually a key supplier to these markets with its high allaic sunflower oil. But as its war with Russia continues, there are concerns about the size and availability of the Ukrainian sunflower crop this season. Yeah, we are getting, you know, in the last three weeks, a number of calls from uh, European customers who were seeking an alternative to the higher lake sunflower oil, as you indicated. And certainly that awareness, we've been out there for the last five years, you know, promoting super high lake sunflower oil um, to a range of customers globally. And now we're just starting to see that, you know, through this unfortunate situation, um, they're looking for an alternate, an alternate supply of the super, super high lake oil. And David Hudson says while the increased awareness and exposure of safflower in Australia may help accelerate development of some products, he's remaining focused on building the safflower industry long term. Joe Prendergast with that report and Joe's put together an online story for you to have a look at too. Just search ABC Safflower Ukraine and you can read through Joe's story. 14 to 1. Farmers are reporting the controversial pre-emergent herbicide overwatch is still active in some soils close to 12 months after it was applied at sowing time last year. Now, Overwatch is a residual herbicide new to the market last season, offering up to 12 weeks of ryegrass control in crops like barley, wheat and canola. And while many farmers say it was extremely effective in controlling weeds, others say it also damaged their crops and caused yield losses. And some of those farmers are pursuing a class action against manufacturer FMC. Victorian agricultural consultant Matt Whitney says, while Overwatch is still active in some soils, it shouldn't be a concern. We're still seeing some bleaching and yellowing in some paddocks where Overwatch was used last season. It's mainly showing up in barley crops. Barley is more sensitive than wheat. And we're just seeing the the rains activating over summer, some of that residual overwatch herbicide that's still in the soil. Is that surprising that we're probably approaching 12 months on and that that chemical could still be active? Yeah, it's a funny one. This particular chemical, Bixlazone, it's very, very active at minute rates. Now, a lot of the chemicals don't show many symptoms at such low rates, but this one does. It's what's called a plant bleacher. So it inhibits the plant from photosynthesizing and, and creating light to energy. So even tiny little traces of this stuff in the ground can make sensitive crops just go that bit of a yellow or bleachy colour. Okay, that's the despite I think it's advertised with with uh, up to twelve weeks residual control. Yeah, it is. That that's the weed control, effective weed control. So that's the kill weed such such as ryegrass, which it works very well on. But the actual residual goes beyond that, and you need. You need breakdown of the herbicide through microbial action primarily to degrade it, but often this takes time. You need moist conditions, you need warm conditions, 
and then that chemical is just going to stay in the soil until it's completely broken down. And even like minute traces over summer, even come autumn, you know, it's, it's going to show up in some sensitive crops. It doesn't mean it's going to necessarily harm anything, but it just looks quite visual when you go out in the field. Okay, so where you're seeing it active at the moment, is it just causing bleaching or is it killing those, those weeds or all that self-sown barley? No, it's mainly just a bit of a slight discoloration in the barley. The rains have just flushed a bit of that chemical through the root system and it's got a bit of temporary bleaching. These are self-sowns anyway, so they're, no, they're not really any benefit to anyone. It has actually worked on some of the summer weeds, so it's suppressed a few, slowed them down, so they haven't actually got to great size. So it has given some benefits to summer weed control as long as you understand that the, the sensitivity for the crops coming in the, in the next year. In the next uh, few weeks, I suppose, when people do start sowing, is this something to be concerned about or, or conscious of or, or do you think it won't be an issue? Yeah, I think lupins are a crop that, that give very high sensitivity. So if you used Overwatch last year, for example, in a barley crop and you were sowing lupins here this year, you'd probably be a bit wary of the plant back, especially on sandy soils, and you, you would expect some bleaching in, in those situations. I think it's very important to look at the labelled plant backs, to look at not only the time length of time you need, but also the moisture requirement that you need to break certain herbicides down. So barley crops may show some symptoms if Overwatch was used in canola last year, and, and I'd expect that to be very, very, very mild temporary bleaching, which the, which the crop would grow out of, because the rates there would be very low. Just reflecting back, uh, we've spoken at ABC Rural about all sorts of different experiences last season with Overwatch. Some people thought it was great, uh, controlled their ryegrass exceptionally well and didn't harm their crops. Other people have sworn they'll never use it again. Uh, what were your experiences with your clients? Yeah, it was mixed. Um, I think everyone did a lot of learning last year. It was a new chemical. Um, I think a lot of the damage came from a lot of farmers did so dry in, in the soils and some of these soils were very quite hard and, and some of the bars struggled to penetrate and get the seeding depth required. And Overwatch is one of those chemicals that needs good physical separation from the seed. So you really want to be sowing three centimetres or more and making sure that you've got that separation. The other one that caused a bit of damage, I think, was primarily due to the solubility of the chemical. So that's the ability of the chemical to move with moisture. So farmers sow and dry, then it rained after and it washed some of that chemical back in the row and that gave some bleaching. So there was multiple factors of why there was some damage last year. But overall, the weed control, generally speaking, was very, very good. And it's a, it's a unique mode of action too. So this is a new group, a group Q, and it's vital to our system to rotate the different modes of action groups to um, keep the, the weeds guessing. Given that it seems the great majority of issues were in barley specifically, are you going to be recommending its use in barley this season? Yeah, look, probably primarily pitch it in wheat. Wheat just has a greater tolerance of the Overwatch herbicide, so it is definitely safer in wheat than barley. There will be some used in barley, but I think farmers will be very mindful of the soil type that it gets used in and making sure that they're getting good separation from the chemical and the seed. And, and just checking things on their bar, like things like soil throw and making sure that you know, the right rates are going out, basically checking that you've, you've done everything right you can to make it safe. Just finally, Matt, uh, we talked about the residual issue with Overwatch, but obviously there are uh, other chemical residuals to consider. I guess generally, what should people be wary or, or conscious of? Yeah, look, there's plenty of residual herbicides out there that, that can give damage, especially when you have dry springs or dry summers. 
because majority of the herbicides require moisture and temperature to break down. So if we've had a dry summer, lack of moisture, some of these herbicides out there like chlorpyrrolid or lontrol, balance, if you're wanting to sow canola after chickpeas, and even the any herbicides or the clearfield crops that have used the group Bs on them, they can hang around longer than expected. So it's really important that you, you look at your rainfall, the soil type. Soil type's a big one because sandy soils don't have a lot of microbial action often. And therefore, even if it is wet, there's not the microbial population there to break some residues down. So I encourage people, if they're worried, to do a pot test, which is either you plant the seeds of the intended crop in the paddock where the herbicide was last year, or you grab some of that soil and you put it in a pot and water it up at home and, and just check the symptoms when the, when the crop comes up. Some handy hints there from agricultural consultant Matt Whitney from Swan Hill in Victoria talking to Angus Verley. Seven minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Off to the markets very shortly. Tracy Kilner going through the Catanning sheep market for you. First, though, a 44-degree day in the middle of wine harvest. Not ideal even for a veteran of the region. But Ben Kane is in his first season running Duke's Vineyard in the Peronga Ups. He was a winemaker in the Margaret River region before moving to the Great Southern this year to take over one of the longest-running wineries in the region. He says he's confident the vintage will ride out the unexpected heat and unpredictable weather to come. We've had a day that was like in 44 degrees, um, probably the hottest since the 60s, and um, that really puts strain on the vines. Um, you have to adapt and, and move quite quickly. We're generally a quite low irrigation vineyard here but with that heat coming on we wanted to protect the fruit we wanted to protect the vines keep the leaves on so we kept a little bit of irrigation uh, up to it it can give you a little scorching around the edges of the leaves but uh, um, honestly we we're really happy with how the canopy's maintained we've still got full height of uh, leaves and this is pretty much your production of your flavors and your aromatics and help to develop the tannins so it's given us small berry size, um, thicker skins. We get a lot of character, um, a lot of intensity, uh, and so it's going to be a pretty good year, I think. Interesting year to come in as your first here now as the owner at Dukes. Tell me a bit about that process. How have you come to sort of take over this this vineyard, and what sort of challenges come along with that? For us, we were my wife and I were looking for an opportunity that was uh, somewhere quite cool, um, somewhere that had established vines and that had a, had a great label and, uh, and a great brand presence within the market. Uh, what we saw with Duke and Hildy's vineyard here was something that had been established for over 20 years, had a great strong direct-to-consumer following and something that was in a truly special part of the world. You know, if you talk to Duke, he, he sort of says if he's got... If he had 20 more years, he would uh, he would he'd himself take it on to the next level, and he thinks he's uh, he's got it to a pretty special place now. So, I think he's pretty fascinated to see where we can take it. If it comes to pass that there's more heat in store for us or limited water, how do you anticipate carrying through with some of the challenges of this season in particular? Right now we're in the home stretch, so um, if we get heat now, it's it's not a, a big issue going forward. I think. You know, one of the things, one of the challenges we face is uh, having to deal with not only climate change but extremes in weather. And so whether that's really high heats or really high rainfall, 
um, sporadic kind of weather, lots of wind. wind. Wind's a big factor here and it can really dry out the grapes. Our approach is, is going to be similar to, to what Duke has been doing already and just sort of try to manage the site with the least amount of water possible. So farming practices that help promote soil biology, um, health and, and essentially give the vines the natural resistance to, to extremes in climate and weather by reducing irrigation we're actually allowing the the roots to dig down deeper they have more resources to to resist these kind of um, these crazy weather patterns you know i'd love to sort of look towards organics and biodynamics i've had experience with biodynamics uh with my time in california and uh i think it's a challenge here but i think it's uh, it's achievable so i'd really like to see what we can do here Winemaker Ben Kane in the Parongarups with Angus McIntosh and wishing a happy retirement to Duke and Hildy Ranson, who established the vineyard that Ben is running today. Three to one. Ticker Tanning now and 8,521 sheep and lambs were yarded for sale today, so numbers down about 4,500 on last week. Tracy Kilner has been at the sale today. Tracy, did prices drop again today because some wheat works are struggling to process many sheep due to those COVID-related staffing problems? Yes, Bill, we had a dramatic drop in pricing as processors experienced a worker shortage due to the quarantines. Lambs generally eased 10 to $20 while mutton was discounted up to $50 a head. Live export were active on medium weight weather lambs, while most lamb sales went back to the paddock or feedlots. A small selection of heavy lambs remained firm on last week, averaging below 750 cents a kilo carcass weight. Mutton eased with processor demand seeing heavy use top at $160, finishing under 500 cents a kilo carcass weight. The lightweight lambs weighing under 12 kilos carcass weight sold from $10 to $87. Weights under 16 kilos carcass weight eased, making from 64 to 127. Heavier under 18 kilo carcass weight returned 90 to 145, while trade weight lambs returned 120 to 173. Heavy lambs sold from $157 to $191 a head. The processors purchased the young Merino ewe hoggets from 64 to 150 and wear the hoggets from 116 to 167. Heavy crossbred hoggets sold from 119 to $151 a head. Lightweight and medium store ewes sold from $38 for very light score one ewes to $123. Medium weight prime ewes weighing under 30 kilos carcass weight returned 100 to $150 with a fleece. The heavy weight ewes over 30 kilos carcass weight sold from $110 to $160 a head. Mature heavy weathers made $167 and mature rams sold from $5 to $70. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you very much for that, Tracy. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. If the past two years of lockdowns weren't hard enough, now rising costs are hitting small businesses across the country. Is there anything that can be done to help? You'll hear the latest in our Cost of Living series. And do we need to deploy the Grey Army to lift the economy? Many older Australians want to work, but is the current tax structure discouraging them from doing so? Those stories are more coming up on The World Today. And this text from John in Bunbury to finish off. Travelling toward a rail crossing 40 years ago in the middle of the night, I suddenly spotted a grain crossing wagon, tried to stop, and I did in time, but never forgot the incident. One o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.